America's post-World War II euphoria was shattered on 25 June 1950 when North Korean communist forces invaded democratic South Korea. I'm Oliver North, and in this riveting War Stories podcast, you're going to hear from some of the 1.7 million American heroes who served in the Korean campaign of 1950-53. to Though it's sometimes referred to as the Forgotten War, It was anything but for those who served there or the more than 35,000 families of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who perished fighting the North Korean and Communist Chinese armies. By the summer of 1951, the war had become a sanguinary stalemate with vicious fighting at places the troops called Bloody Ridge, Porkchop Hill, and Heartbreak Ridge. These were the treacherous hill battles, sometimes contesting for terrain smaller than a football field. Listen to the voices of heroic men who survived this carnage that went on in the deadly heat and thirst of summer all the way through the freezing cold of a Korean winter. You'll hear how one encircled American stacked frozen enemy bodies to protect himself from enemy fire. And you'll meet the man who would later be portrayed by screen legend Gregory Peck in the classic war drama Pork Chop Hill. Come with us for the hill battles of Korea. If you're hiring, you need to know where to post your job to find the best candidates. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it right. ZipRecruiter.com strive. This statue is called the Morning Soldier. In his hand, he clutches the dog tags of fallen comrades. Hello, I'm Oliver North, and welcome to War Stories. This is the Korean War Memorial in Atlantic City, New Jersey. The Korean campaign of 1950 to 53 has been called the Forgotten War. Yet during its three years, over 35,000 Americans died defending the Korean Peninsula. More than 1.7 million Americans fought in Korea at places like Bloody Ridge and Pork Chop Hill and Heartbreak Ridge. These were the treacherous hill battles, terrain so blasted by mortar and artillery fire, it looked like the surface of the moon. During one terrible 24 hours of battle, the U.S. 15th Field Artillery fired an incredible 14,000 rounds. During another battle, the bodies of the dead and wounded lay everywhere, as one vet told me, like pumpkins in a patch. Tonight, You'll hear from those warriors who fought the hill battles of Korea. The period following World War II saw a newly optimistic America and the start of an unrivaled period of economic prosperity. Returning GIs moved to places like Levittown, New York, and the baby boom was born. But while many hoped for a lasting peace, a new enemy emerged, once again threatening our freedom. Its name? Communism. Rising darkly from the banks of the Neva, the Kremlin stands sinister and mysterious. 
the conspiratorial home of these evil men. It's an interesting period of time. The Soviets are moving into Eastern Europe. Uh, China has fallen. The post-war line in the sand had become obvious. On one side, democracy, America, and President Harry Truman. On the other, communists led by China's Mao Zedong and Russia's Joe Stalin. This would be the Cold War, but warm blood would be spilt fighting its battles. And just five years after the end of World War II came the first major test. Don Sign is a professor of military history and retired U.S. Navy captain. During the Vietnam War, he earned three Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars, and the Silver Star. We have a new Secretary of State by the name of Dean Atchison at the Washington Press Club. And there he is showing to the members of the press what the interests of the United States are. And he leaves out Korea. Some say that diplomatic mistake caused the Korean War. At the time, North and South Korea were divided along the 38th parallel. The Communist North was led by Kim Il-sung, a puppet of Stalin. Kim was convinced that the United States wouldn't fight if he invaded South Korea. He was wrong. Russian-controlled North Koreans with typical red disregard for international decency, invading their fellow countrymen to the South to bring another international crisis to the already long-suffering world. And all of a sudden, I got uh, a draft notice. The North Koreans had invaded the South, and uh, suddenly we were at, uh, at war. At 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, June 25th, a 20-year-old Carlos Smith was living in Chicago, Illinois, and unsure what to do with his life. An opening barrage of North Korean artillery and mortars would draw him into a war for a country he couldn't find on a map. 130,000 North Korean troops backed by 150 Russian-made tanks moved across the 38th parallel. Communist forces steamrolled the south, quickly capturing its capital, Seoul. The American forces and the Korean, South Korean forces, were vastly outnumbered and overmatched at the time. And they're driven to the southeast corner of South Korea and to what we commonly know as the Pusan perimeter. Trapped with the sea at their back, 90,000 American and South Korean troops were reinforced by a new international organization, the United Nations. It's very significant. I mean, it really is, is the first time that uh, the UN has taken action and taken action as a collective body to repel aggressors. Ultimately, 16 nations would send troops to liberate South Korea. The majority of them, some 1.7 million, would come from America. People like Carlos Smith, who reported for his army physical on Halloween of 1950. We got our orders to, uh, to go to the Four East Command. And of course, that meant Korea. Among your recruit training platoon, how many of those guys went to Far East Command versus went to Germany or somewhere else? There were a number of them. I'm going to say uh, 50 to 60 percent. Command of the UN forces was given to General Douglas MacArthur. At 70 years old, he remained in the public eye a true American hero. But in Washington's eye, especially to President Harry Truman, he was trouble. General Walton Walker commanded the 8th U.S. Army. Less than three months after the North Koreans invaded South Korea, MacArthur went on the offensive at Incheon, some 18 miles west of Seoul. MacArthur's landings at Incheon put the North Koreans on the defensive. UN forces broke out of the Pusan perimeter and by September were back at the 38th parallel. It was another victory for MacArthur. He frees the South, 
and he's achieved the objective. He's pushed the North Koreans either out, captured them, or killed them. He's now at the 30th parallel. The war could be over at this point. But the old warrior wanted more. On October 7, 1950, his troops crossed the 38th parallel, invading North Korea. Young men like Illinois native Guy Robinson were called into service. I took my training at uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Six weeks of inf infantry training and eight weeks of engineer training. But that was uh, soon forgotten. It was very evident that we were all being used to fill the gap of infantrymen that had been killed or wounded. By the end of October, MacArthur's troops had pushed the North Koreans to the border with China. Some historians feel that invading North Korea was MacArthur's deliberate attempt to draw Mao Zedong and China into a showdown. Communism versus democracy. At the end of October, the Chinese obliged the old warrior and launched a major counteroffensive. By late 1950, over 300,000 communist Chinese troops had joined the fight. Overwhelmed, the UN forces were driven back down the peninsula. And then an accident made things worse. General Walker, uh, who is heading the 8th Army, is killed in the Jeep accident. And Ridgway will be sent from Washington. General Matthew Ridgway was a colorful West Point graduate. He was known for wearing a hand grenade on his chest. The resulting nickname was rather risque. The first word was iron. The second rhymes with grits. General Ridgway came over and, of course, did a great, great job. He was just a great leader. Iowa's 23-year-old Herschel Chapman was also a graduate of West Point, nicknamed Hawkeye. He was assigned to the 2nd Infantry Division and knew what he wanted in military leadership. I don't really have any great opinion of General MacArthur, pompous sort of guy, surrounded by a lot of photographers, uh, very aggressive. He wanted us to get in war with China, which we couldn't, couldn't do, and Harry Truman made the right decision. In April 1951, six months after the Chinese entered the war, Harry Truman fired the man he called a prima donna. Three and a half months after replacing MacArthur, Ridgway had both sides sitting down for peace talks. But in the bloody hills of Korea, the battles raged on. When you're in a position uh, on a hill, if you are with another guy in your foxhole, your whole world in front of you is probably 15 feet on this side and 15 feet on the other side. We knew they were out there. We didn't know whether there was a dozen or 10,000. You, you never knew. With peace talks underway, rumor was it would all be over by Christmas. The rumors were wrong. The battle for Bloody Ridge, when war stories continues. By the summer of 1951, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were sentenced to death for selling atomic secrets to the communists. A half world away, the Korean War was now a year old and more than 10,000 American troops had lost their lives. The front lines had moved up and down the Korean peninsula. By June, over 250,000 U.S. troops were in country and on the communist side, over half a million. And in a twist of irony, both sides were dug in along the 38th parallel right back where the war had started. Carlos Smith with the 2nd Infantry Division's 23rd Regiment remembered the enemy's tactics. They would come in at night and, uh, and, and, and make the noises uh, threaten to attack. And then an hour before daylight, 
they would disappear. How far is it from the U.S. lines to the Chinese and North Korean lines? At that point, it was across the valley, but the lines are pretty ill-defined. The Korean War was a war that was fought for the high ground. You didn't fight for the valleys. You didn't want to be in the valleys. You fought for the high ground, and you got to the high ground, and you dug in. The combat was fierce and bloody. Both sides were locked in seemingly endless seesaw battles. The South Korean capital, Seoul, fell not once but twice, and both times the city had to be liberated. Operations with names like Ripper and Tomahawk kept the pressure on the communists. Other battles were fought on hills with no names. They were known simply by a number that represented their height in meters. In Korea, there was always another hill. My first time in Thunderbar, I felt nothing. I was just uh, cool as I could be. And uh, my only goal was to be sure that all of the guys that I came in with left with me. We reached stalemates. We're fighting trench warfare. We're just sort of jockeying back and forth across valleys. Uh, one person holds the hill for a while, but then the other side will regain the hill. While the negotiators talked, the fighting raged on, each side unwilling to be the first to yield an inch of ground. I don't think we ever thought much about the peace talks, except they were going on, because we had a job to do. We are going to the next hill, the next mission. A month after peace talks began, General Ridgway approved Operation Talons. It called for UN troops to seize a number of strategic hills. His idea was to improve their defensive positions on the front lines and their negotiating position at the peace table. On the 18th of August, 1951, the 2nd Infantry Division assaulted hills 983, 940, and 783, better known as Bloody Ridge. First Lieutenant Herschel Chapman was there. Bloody Ridge was a tough operation. We had uh, three U.S. battalions and a French battalion and a supporting 105-millimeter artillery battalion. The communist forces were dug in on top of Bloody Ridge, but their trenches and foxholes offered limited protection. What happened up there? The, the ridge lines of Bloody Ridge was totally uh, void of any undergrowth, any foliage, any trees. There was nothing there. There was bodies all around, uh, Chinese, North Korean bodies. The troops, including the 1st Marine Division, combined devastating infantry assaults with airstrikes by B-29 and Corsair fighter bombers and salvo after salvo of artillery to cripple the defenders. It's almost like the game King of the Hill. Some bully goes to the top of the hill, invites everyone else up to challenge him, and he pushes him down until either he's overcome by, by sheer numbers or by exhaustion. And this is the same case here in, in Korea. Who has the will and the wherewithal to hold those ridges? After almost three weeks, the enemy was broken. Up on Bloody Ridge, you just couldn't believe all the dead bodies that were there, uh, North Koreans. The North Koreans were tough soldiers. They stayed and they died. They would not retreat. The communist defenders suffered an estimated 15,000 dead and wounded. Allied casualties stood at 2,700. Guy Robinson, Carlos Smith, and Herschel Chapman considered themselves lucky, but their luck was about to change. With Bloody Ridge taken at a terrible toll, attention turns to a terrain feature whose name says it all, Heartbreak Ridge. That's next on War Stories. 
Bloody Ridge had been seized by brave men like Carlos Smith and Herschel Chapman in the late summer of 1951. But it wasn't long before the next battleground loomed on the horizon, a series of hills that would soon be known around the world as Heartbreak Ridge. In September, you get the, the word to move where? We moved out and began to move in the direction of Heartbreak Ridge. After Bloody Ridge, uh, we got the order to seize and take Heartbreak Ridge, a ridge line consisting of hills 894 to 931, 851 from south to north. It's being defended by the 6th Regiment of the North Korean People's Army. Uh, there are also elements of the Chinese there as well. There were thousands of enemy soldiers so well dug in that any thought of a quick victory soon faded. But General Ridgway knew these hills were a must-have. If he secures these peaks, he's able then to press against the enemy, sort of taking a defensive approach and at the same time preventing uh, recurring attacks by a pretty hefty number of Chinese now who have moved into the area to complement the North Koreans. Survival against an enemy like the North Koreans meant using all your senses. The skill that you have to have is uh, you have to be alert. But these things uh, you're not taught in training. These are senses you have to have. The North Koreans ate garlic raw. And when you smelled garlic, you knew they were in the immediate area. On September 13th, eight days after Bloody Ridge was seized, the 2nd Infantry Division and the Communists squared off. And what faced Ridgeway and his troops was literally an uphill battle. The troops were attacking uphill under observation. The enemy could fire uh, small arms, machine gun fires down the ridge line. They could sit up there and observe our troops coming up and drop in mortars. As we were started up this particular valley, they threw mortars at us. They had that zeroed in, so immediately we lost a lot of guys. They used the, what they called a burp gun, and that burp gun just put out so darn much lead is pitiful. Wherever you heard the burp gun, you know where they were. Ed Felton was a 20-year-old farm boy from Dodge, Nebraska. He joined the Army in 1950 and did his basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I was used to hard work, and so the long drives and the long walks was no problem. Um, there was guys from Boston that couldn't tolerate that. They thought they was going to die, but it was no problem for me. Fountain was trained as a crane operator and expected to be building roads and bridges. He never thought he'd end up on the front lines carrying a rifle. The first thing that uh, was rather upsetting when we arrived, uh, this is where we picked up our ammo, everything for the front lines. I got a Browning automatic that's called a bar. I've never seen that weapon before. That's a heavy weapon and heavy ammo. Assigned to the 23rd Regiment's Love Company, Ed got to the front lines just in time to be one of the first up Heartbreak Ridge. As a raw green soldier, it wasn't long before the harsh realities of war were staring him right in the face. At one point, we had to make an extreme left step upward. And as I'd done that, uh, I stepped up and... Um, And this GI was laying there, and uh, of course he was dead, and it was warm. He was slightly swollen, and my face almost met his face. And, um, and I mean, that was a rude awakening. This is, this is for real. And of course, we kept proceeding up the hill. And it wasn't easy. 60-pound packs weighed them down, and that was the least of their problems. Add an incline and then add the fact that people are lobbing grenades down on you and small arms and machine gun fire and small artillery. 
Uh, it just, it's just a nightmare. You never saw the North Koreans with a lot of gear on them. They carried the rifle and the ammo and a couple of socks full of rice. But they had the endurance that we didn't. The North Koreans were perched along Heartbreak Ridge, making our troops below sitting ducks. We were getting sniper fire from one side and mortar fire from the other side. And um, it was uh, not a good place to be. That's probably putting it mildly. We had a lot of casualties during that time. We had 141 on the 13th of September. Two days later, we had 17 left out of 141. Most leaders were wounded or killed. They were out there exposed, leading their troops. Leaders could not survive the withering fire and the mortars. The highest ranking person at that time was a corporal. Uh, I was one of them. There was no one else left. No officers left? No, no. No senior no, NCOs? No, no, no. And, and essentially, still in combat? Still in combat. But we were totally without a leader. We, d we didn't know what was going on. Despite it all, the men soldiered on. At this point, the top of the ridge has not been taken yet. About the 16th and 17th of September, we were still clinging to the slopes trying not to get pushed off, trying to, to make some gains. Someone decided that we would try a night attack. All of a sudden, someone had another flamethrower. 70 yeah. pounds in your back. Right. You, you light yourself up with a flamethrower at 12 o'clock at night and the whole world looks at you. You try to hit your target and then you dive one way or the other because you know that, that, that everyone is going to be zeroing in on you right there. We were able to make some ground, some gains at night. Little did Carlos or anyone else know the battle for Heartbreak Ridge would go on for an agonizing month. When War Stories continues, the incredible story of why Rifleman Ed Falton turned down the Purple Heart. Heartbreak Ridge. Five days into the campaign, little progress had been made, but the 23rd Regiment had suffered extremely heavy casualties. Hundreds of men had been killed or wounded. On September 18th, a daring night attack was launched, spearheaded by Love Company. Its commander, Lieutenant Peter Monfort, a 1950 West Point classmate of Herschel Hawkeye Chapman. Monfort's company went up the ridge very successfully, knocking out bunkers and capturing prisoners. L Company secured 851 the northernmost hill on the ridge. We were right behind Love Company, and they had a firefight with North Koreans. And all of a sudden, uh, there was dead silent. They would blow their bugles and scream. And then they'd come. And then all of a sudden, the North Koreans ambushed Love Company and ran over them. Screaming. Burp guns, machine guns, uh, mortar fire, and L Company was blown off 851. All the company officers were killed. Pete Monfort, the company commander, was killed. The brutal fight lasted 14 bloody hours. Only 44 of 167 men from L Company survived the carnage. Bodies littered the hillside. Under heavy enemy fire, Guy Robinson and his comrades from K Company volunteered to retrieve Pete Monfort's body. We got up on our hands and knees and crawled down into a little saddle. They just poured rounds after rounds right on top of us. We couldn't find his body. 
So we came back. They managed to make it back through the furious crossfire on Hill 851, but not with the body of L Company's beloved commander. For their bravery under fire, Guy Robinson and his comrades were awarded the Bronze Star. We were knocked off the ridge on the 19th of September. A week following, we tried many more times. In most cases, it was unsuccessful. The enemy crossfire was unrelenting. For weeks, troops climbing up the ridge were pinned down, unable to move. When Ed Fountain's squad was trapped one night, his squad leader got on the radio. He wanted uh, orders on what to do. He wanted to retreat. And you know what the commanding officer said? He said, fix bayonets in charge. But his squad leader was having none of it. We moved back. He said, you'll be damned if he's going to kill us all. Well, it'd be suicide. What could you do fixing bayonets in charge when you got a machine gun sitting up there? The fighting is so fierce that a company of about 250 men is decimated to a point where there's only 23 men left in a company. There was times I actually gave up. You know, your luck of odds has got to run out. It was said to Ridgeway, these attacks are suicidal. And so his tactics change a little bit. Realizing that his strategy wasn't working, Ridgeway called off the feudal hill assaults in late September. A new approach was needed, one that would shed less American blood. Ridgeway staff soon came up with a plan. The attack north at the Mundundne Valley with the other two regiments in 1938 to knock out the enemy uh, lines of reinforcement, knock out the enemy supporting fires that were stopping us from getting Heartbreak Ridge. It was labeled Operation Touchdown, and it worked. After more than a week of intense combat, the communists entrenched on the ridge found themselves low on supplies and reinforcements. As the defenses eroded, so did their morale. They're in holes. They're not being resupplied. Their goal is that they must stay in these bunkers and hold them at, at all costs. So was their will broken? Absolutely. It was broken by the fighting of U.S. and U.N. service personnel. The soldiers take the hill trench by trench, bunker by bunker. On the 13th of October, we took Heartbreak Ridge. But at an unbelievable cost. The 2nd Division suffered 3,700 casualties, over half coming from the 23rd Infantry. Enemy losses were estimated at more than 25,000 men. Immediately after Heartbreak Ridge was secured, Herschel Chapman went looking for the body of his classmate, Pete Monfort. I spent the entire day traversing the entire ridge I found Pete about where I thought he would be, where he'd been laying for, for about a month. The worst moment was finding the body of my classmate on the hill. L Company Z Felton was one of the survivors. He'd been wounded by an enemy grenade when he single-handedly knocked out a North Korean machine gunner. And a piece of shrapnel got me in the cheek here. For this combat wound, he'd be eligible for a Purple Heart. But Ed Felton had bigger worries on his mind. My mom was, had a bad heart, and she was in the hospital all, all the time. They said all those that were wounded could go apply for a Purple Heart, and I said I didn't think I was going to do that, because if I did that, then they would be notified. I knew she would never live if she found out I was actually wounded in Korea. And I didn't want them to get that letter, so I refused uh, the application for the uh, Purple Heart. A ceasefire nears, but the bloody fighting is far from over. On Pork Chop Hill, the artillery fire is so intense, one GI protected himself by taking cover beneath a pile of frozen enemy bodies. That's next, when War Stories continues.
I, Dwight D. Eisenhower, do solemnly swear. January 1953, America has a new president and commander-in-chief, Dwight David Eisenhower. And yet another American general commands the UN troops. Mark Clark was now in charge. The peace talks dragged on into a second year, and the Korean War had now claimed 30,000 American lives, an average of 900 a month. On the enemy side, the communists had also lost a leader, Joe Stalin. The so-called Man of Steel was dead. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev. Since heartbreak and bloody ridges, the fighting had been fierce. But the front line remained virtually static. Intense battles had been fought at Bunker Hill, Old Baldy, and Outpost Kelly. The fight for freedom and democracy found more young Americans joining up to replace the dead and wounded from Korea. You decided you're going to join the service. Which service did you pick? I was uh, afraid of heights, but I ended up in the airport. 18-year-old Tony Sanchez trained to jump out of planes, but Uncle Sam had other ideas. I landed there, and as I left the ship, unbeknownst to me, a, a fellow put a seven with a piece of chalk on my helmet, and that was the end of my airborne days. Was I ended up in the 7th Division. And it was all based on some guy standing at the bottom of the ladder. Just putting a, a chalk mark on my helmet. I was a straight leg, what they call a straight leg. <laughs> I got sent to the 7th Division in Korea. By March of 1953, Private First Class Tony Sanchez and roughly 100 members of I Company were defending a hill called Pork Chop. Opposing them, elements of the 10,000-man-strong 67th Chinese Division. It's an outpost. Right. Not too far away are the North Koreans and the Communist Chinese. Oh, they, they were close by, that's for sure. You could uh, almost hear them chatter sometimes. Had the trenches already been dug inside? Oh, yes, hill? yes, yes. The trenches were there. We lived like moles. We were underground all the time. Trench lines? Trench lines. It, it was a circle around the top of the hill. Mostly, uh, even the trenches were covered because of the fact that the artillery, it was just unreal. The artillery would hit us 24 hours a day. I, I call it holy hell because it was just the fear used to overcome you sometimes. You'd uh, see guys get hit. I, I particularly saw one guy get blown up in pieces where we had to go actually looking for him to put him together. One night during a lull in the barrage of enemy fire, Tony was ordered to man a listening post, an LP. He was positioned a few hundred yards in front of his company's perimeter. I got to this uh, shell crater. The only thing below ground was my butt. That's the only thing I could hide. And this artillery used to come in quite forceful at times. So I said, God, I, I have to do something with this. I, I just can't. I'm, I'm exposed. And I went out scrounging, and I found what I thought at the time was uh, frozen uh, uh, sandbags. And I crawled back, and I started making a little wall around the, uh, the shell hole. And that's where I stayed all night. When dawn came... Now, I took a good look at my sandbags. They were not sandbags. They were torsos. Or Chinese dead. Yeah, they were Chinese because that's, they had the habit of hiding the bodies. And this artillery are constantly hitting it. First thing that came off the body was the limbs. So there was just torsos all over the place. The hill was a landscape of death. Virtually every tree had been blown away. Red-hot shrapnel filled the air. Nothing above ground could survive for long. You're almost like a rat in a tunnel. That's it. You live like a rat. You're constantly in the underground. You're always dirty. So, uh, boy, I imagine we must have smelled beautiful. It might seem impossible, but for the men of the 7th Infantry Division, life on Pork Chop Hill 
would get worse. The Chinese and North Koreans make a decision to take the hill at all costs, and they do. Porkchop Hill becomes a symbol of North Korean and Chinese will and determination. And on April 16, 1953, the enemy overran Porkchop. The Chinese and the North Koreans want to know, do we have the will to do it? Are we willing to, to sacrifice lives? Are we willing to spill blood? You have the decision by the American military leaders that, yes, we're going to take this hill at all costs. When it's overrun, you know it's not going to be easy to get the Chinese out of the bunkers. So you, you go expecting the worst, and, but hoping for the best. Joseph Clemens graduated from West Point in 1950, along with Herschel Chapman and Pete Monfort. By April of 53, he'd been in Korea six months. Now a first lieutenant, Clemens commanded King Company, 31st Regiment, 7th Infantry Division. His orders came down at about 3 a.m. on April 16th, and they were simple. Clemens and his 135 men were to take back Pork Chop Hill. It was probably not more than 100 yards, probably less than that, but it was a steep, rocky hillside, and everybody was loaded down with extra ammunition, flamethrowers, machine guns, you know, so it wasn't like you were out on a hike. At about 5 a.m., Clemens and the rest of K Company moved out. We had to get up and get in the trenches before it got daylight. And it worked pretty well. We were able to uh, do that before we started receiving any heavy enemy fire. As grenades and artillery rained down, confusion and casualties mounted. Well, it's hard to maintain control being hit by fragments from the artillery rounds. You can only see a short distance where you are, so you have to move up and try to get everybody to keep moving. You wait for a lull in the artillery and then try to push everybody forward. I remember one of the squad leaders had lost his hand from an enemy grenade, and he wasn't worried about that. He was coming back. He wanted to know how the attack was going. I remember that very distinctly. There was a lot of uh, heroism shown by members of that company. By midday, Clemens and what was left of his company reached their objective, the top of Porkchop Hill. But they still didn't control the terrain. Our men would hold a bunker, and maybe uh, two bunkers away, the Chinese had a bunker. And uh, this was sort of interspersed throughout the hill. He has approximately 25 men left of his company. What are you fighting for? You're fighting to stay alive. You're fighting that every single bullet will be expended. The Chinese came out also, and uh, I remember them being on top of the bunker I was in. We got out and uh, shot them off the top of the bunker. Your only desire is that you're going to live. You also realize that you may not, but you will stay there and fight to the very last man. The Chinese were still hadn't given the hill up. There's no way I could see that if we didn't get any reinforcements that we were going to survive. Lieutenant Joseph Clemens and his men make it to the top of Pork Chop Hill, but low on ammunition and surrounded, survival seemed impossible. Hear how he and his men beat the odds next on War Stories. By mid-afternoon on April 16, 1953, First Lieutenant Joseph Clemens and K Company were down to 25 men in their battle for Pork Chop Hill. A whopping 39,000 rounds had been fired by U.S. artillery, and still they hadn't taken the hill. 
vast majority of the company uh, stayed on that hill, took the punishment, and didn't throw down their weapons and run away or anything. I mean, they stayed. And they knew that the future was pretty bleak. His men had weathered a barrage of artillery, mortars, and grenades, impossible to describe. In a few short hours, thousands of rounds had been aimed at Clemens and his men, and many had found their mark. You're getting pounded by the artillery, and there's nothing you can do about it except hope that one of them doesn't land right on top of you. K Company had managed to reach the top of the hill, but they were spread out and low on ammo, facing an enemy that was heavily fortified and in bunkers as close as 15 yards away. One of the members of the battalion staff came up. I emphasized to him that we weren't going to be able to hold the hill with the men that we had left. And so he took that message back, but uh, nothing happened. And he's told, hey, attack's coming tonight. You will hold the hill. There is no retreat. Some of the explosions uh, that were going off on top of the bunker, we knew were satchel charges. And some of the outside sandbags started to come on into the bunkers. Very close, very close quarters. Around 9 p.m., help finally arrived from Company F. Clemens and the 25 men of K Company had held out on pork chop for 16 hours. About midnight, they'd given the order for those men of King Company to go ahead and withdraw from the hill. And that's when I left. But uh, the battle continued on for at least another day or so. Porkchop Hill would stay in our hands for three months. But in early July, the communists launched yet another massive assault. This time, after four days of intense battle, the decision was made for the 7th Infantry Division to evacuate its men. They decided to let the Chinese have it at that time which I'm glad we didn't know at the time when we were fighting for the hill. When the smoke cleared, a total of 344 Americans had died fighting for pork chop. For the enemy, over a thousand men had lost their lives for the top of this hill, an area smaller than a football field. What kept you going? Just survival. Uh, you could be wiped out just uh, one round. Okay. Like that. There wouldn't be enough pieces to put you together. Tony Sanchez came home from his stint in Korea and worked as a bus driver for 38 years. He still vividly remembers those he fought against. They were throwing people out there, just cannon fodder. I recall going through their pockets and pulling out pictures of guys with their wife and their children and their mother and father. Just like our guys. That's right. You're watching War Stories on the Fox News Channel. Stay tuned. An armistice was signed almost an hour ago in Korea. A ceasefire finally came on July 27, 1953, three years, one month, and two days after it all started. And the numbers were grim. More than 35,000 Americans had been killed. 103,000 plus had been wounded. Total casualties for both sides, more than 1.9 million troops. North and South Korean civilians, another two million casualties. Carlos, you once described it as a, as a bad dream. How did you get through it? I got through it like everyone else gets through something like that. You, you end up scarred forever. There's never been an, hardly a day in my life that, that I don't relive some of it. 
Some of the men who fought in the hills of Korea will forever be haunted by those who didn't make it back. This one buddy and I, we used to sing this particular song. But I only have eyes for you. When it come on the radio, I immediately think of him. I often think he was 21 when he died. Here I am, 73 years old. He sure missed out on a lot. After the war, Guy Robinson returned to Michigan and worked in insurance for more than three decades. Carlos Smith returned to school and became an electrical engineer. Ed Fountain went home to Nebraska, where he's still a farmer. And Herschel Chapman, Hawkeye, remained in the Army, serving a tour in Vietnam before retiring as a colonel in 1980. Joseph Clemens also stayed in the Army, retiring as a full colonel. In 1959, the bravery of his men was immortalized in the film Pork Chop Hill. The role of Clemens was played by veteran actor Gregory Peck. Despite the hell they endured, there's one thing none of them will ever forget, the reason why they were there. It was to contain communism, to take a stand. Because we were there, I can take comfort in the fact that the South Koreans are free people. What you may not know is that this war never officially ended. To this day, it's still just a ceasefire. Some 37,000 American troops continue to serve in the Republic of Korea. And North Korea remains part of what President Bush calls the axis of evil. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, the first virtue in a soldier is endurance of fatigue. Courage is only the second virtue. The men who took and defended the hills of Korea knew fatigue. They knew pain and they knew suffering. They faced death and saw friends fall, but they still pressed on. They'd been given an order and they carried it out. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.